And thank you all for bearing with uh, kind of a different song leader every week. We're, we're getting there. Uh, the Lord is opening up a possible opportunity for us. Pray for that uh, in this particular position. But how grateful to have talent like Susie and these friends who help out every week. What a sweetness of the Lord. Uh, this morning, we're going to pick up a, a series, a, kind of a, a mini-series that we started a couple of weeks ago called Relationships, A Glorious Mess. <laughs> well, relationships are what make us human. You are born immediately in relationship, even if you live on an isolated island. You're in relationship to God. You're always in relationship to yourself. And you are always in relationship to others. We will go a step farther. You are also always in relationship to the created world, to stuff. So we are a relational people. God made us that way because that's what He is. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Perfect complement. Eternal communion. Always, if you will, I'll use the word doting over one another. Longing for better for the other. Serving joyfully the other, but we're not always that glorious, are we? We know from our experience that relationships in this hand constitute opportunities for our greatest joys in life and in the same breath, our most painful moments. I use the image of Windsor Ruins to give you a picture of how the Bible presents the reality of what it means to be human in relationship to God, ourselves, and others. Glorious, amazing columns that just take the breath away as you go and stare at it and behold what it was meant to be. And then you see the cracks and the stucco and the cobwebs growing on those old etched columns. This morning we're going to look at the relationship, capital T, capital H, capital E. Get this one wrong, the others don't matter. Enjoy your life. But get this one right, and the others matter. Hear that, parents, of all the things we raise our kids to want to be and do, there is zero, nothing more important, more essential, more human than what we described this morning. It's rated PG-13. That's God's Word. So I'll warn you in advance, if there are problems with it, please see God after the service. I want to begin in what is Hosea's second chapter at the very end. And then chapter 3 is what a pastor in our tradition, James Montgomery Boyce, called, listen to this, the greatest chapter in the entire Bible. Could be preacher hyperbole, we're guilty of that, but I don't think so. So it warrants our attention to consider the greatest chapter in the entire Bible, perhaps. I'll explain the image as we go. This is God speaking through His prophet Hosea to His people. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. God says, I will allure my people. I will romance her. And I will bring her into the wilderness and I will speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards, 
And I'll make the valley of Achor a door of hope. The valley of Achor is where God swallowed up Achan for stealing. It was a place of curse. Hear what he says here. I will make the valley of Achor not a door of destruction, but of hope. And there, my people, she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you, my people, will call me husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the name of the bells from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. Hear these words. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer back to the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall, they shall all answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Now the greatest chapter in Scripture according to James Montgomery Boys. And the Lord said to me, Hosea, go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Hosea speaking. So I bought her for fifteen shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. Let's pray. Lord, there are a lot of mysterious images, strange words, challenging words. Yet, Lord, help us to see beneath what is merely spoken to, Lord, to see Your heart for Your people. Your people who, Lord, are consistently running from You, turning away, seeking other life-giving gods. We pray, Lord, You would reveal to us in a fresh way Your character, Your faithfulness, Your holiness and glory. And use that, Lord, to turn us toward our beloved Christ, Your beloved, in whose name we pray. Amen. I think everyone should should do three things in your life if you hadn't. Everybody should substitute teach for one day.
You, you will no longer complain about teachers getting the summer off. Your kids are horrible, okay? <laughs> everyone should substitute teach one day. Number two, everyone should wait tables at a restaurant for one day. I did that once. Sweetest little Christian people turn into meanies <laughs> because you didn't get there quick enough with their tea. One day, that was all it took. Never again. That's a tough job. You should also umpire Little League Baseball. Their sweet little mamas become ferocious. You realize how hard those jobs are because mistakes are so easy to make and people are so vicious. You get to experience the very lives of people that you once griped about. It's a tough, but it's a good lesson to learn. I say all that because God does something very interesting with Hosea. Hosea was a prophet that lived in the 700s. That means he was a spokesperson for God. And what a prophet did was he was called of God to go address the people. And they weren't just people who told the future. It was more that they, they reminded them of the past. Literally, they were what one of our professors calls prosecuting attorneys. What they would do is they'd hold up the covenant of God. You remember the promises when God led you out of Egypt? Do you remember, you, you will be my people, I will be your God, have no other gods before me, etc., etc., etc. And the purpose of that was to call God's people back to themselves. With Hosea, though, it, it takes a strange twist. God calls this prophet to not just like preach, not just study it in the book and then convey it to people, but to viscerally and in its, his experience to get into what it feels like to be God with his people. What does that feel like? God here, in the words of John Calvin, lisps for us. He has to give us images he has to give us ideas that we can connect to as humans and say that's what it's like to live with God and moreover, God with us. And he uses the image of a marriage. And it's all over Scripture. It, it, we just read the end of Scripture, chapter 19 of Revelation. This is how God views the very end of humanity. It's a marriage. Here, God says, I'm the husband of my people and they are my bride. But in order to, let's say, call Hosea to ministry, he makes him live it. What is it like? He doesn't just think about teaching. He does it. He doesn't just think about becoming an umpire. He makes him do it. He doesn't just think about waiting tables. He makes him experience it. And that's what makes it all the more Powerful. God likens His relationship to us as a marriage. And let's go ahead and get the cat out of the bag first. Because there is, in these words, a description of a rotten marriage. You could say this, God has been in the worst marriage in history. <laughs> he has stuck it out. He, more than we, 
He tells us in chapter 1, he, he sets up the stage and says, Hosea, I want you to do something. Go take to yourself an adulterous wife. Could you imagine? You would think when God says, I'm going to give you a bride, He's going to give you something wonderful and glorious. He gives him a bride who He guarantees she will break your heart. That's what you can expect when you marry her. He guarantees she will always go after other lovers. Always. Hosea, of course, would have been concerned. God goes a step farther. These strange words at the end of chapter 2 actually show up in chapter 1. He says you're going to have three children. One of them, you're going to name Jezreel. No longer a kingdom. You're going to have a daughter. And I want you to name her this. Check this name out. You know, the popular names of the day. It's not Brittany or Lauren. It's no mercy. Call your daughter no mercy. Because I want you to know what's coming upon you for rebelling against me. No mercy. And you'll have a son, and he'll be a sweet son, but you'll call him not my people. That's a bad start, isn't it? But God's taken Hosea to experience and feel something like he feels. You see, God had led his people out of Egypt and said, you will be my light to the nations. And in response to rescue from slavery, you and I will have this tremendously special, close relationship where you worship me, and I adore you and benefit you. Yet, he also said in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, here's the catch. The moment I take you into the land and you finally get what you want, you'll forget me. You will forget me. When your stomach gets fat and you got everything going for you, you will forget me. And what I'm going to do in that time is actually crush you give you a taste of what it's like to wander away from God. I'll let you have it. But for the purpose of bringing you back. That's what Hosea largely is about. Go marry a woman who is going to break your heart every day. An adulterous woman. She will never set her affections on you and she will never stay home very long. And your children will represent my view of my people who have rebelled against me. No longer a kingdom. No mercy. Not my people. In chapter 2, verse 16, it's a very powerful thing. It says this, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Baal was the most prominent of all false gods in the land. It literally means something like master. Lord. I want you to see what verse 16 of chapter 2 is saying. God's people called him by their boyfriend's name. What an utter terror to let that slip out. But he says there's a time when that will no longer come upon your lips. You will be mine. And I will be yours. You know, Hosea, this rotten marriage, it gives us a real sense of a word we so use that we kind of lose, we get numb to it, sin. 
We think of sin as just doing bad things, but I hope you see from this it's much deeper. Yes, as we say, sin is the breaking of God's law. It's what we were created and designed to live like, and yet we consistently break it. But it's more than that, don't you see? Sin breaks God's heart. He's invested in His people It gives us a sense here that sin is a little more cutting than, well, the language we would use when we violate God's good law and hurt other people and withhold forgiveness and commit greed and lust and anger and all those sorts of things. We call them mistakes or slip-ups or we say, I'm broken, true? But God thinks of it as adultery. That says something about us. In God's view, if you've sinned, you're an adulterer. I'm an adulterer. This is a painful word that God conveys to His people. The reason I think we lighten sin is because we're the violators, not the violated. The reason we make less of sin and its gravity and pain and misery and its consequences of just destruction is because we're, we're not the abused. We're the abusers. Our husband mocking and abusing him. That's the reality. There's a painful layer to sin too also presented here. And you gotta, here's the thing about the Gospel. It has to dislocate you before it relocates you. You get that? And here we see through Gomer, this is what sin really looks like. It starts out with pleasure and it becomes an enslaving master to the degree that she's in chains, publicly paraded, being auctioned off to the highest bidder. That's what it, that's what it looks like. That's a, a grievous image of what it means to, well, disobey God. In all of its forms. Well, here's the deal. The focus of chapter 2 and 3 and the reason it's the greatest chapter in the Bible is not to end there and say, good day, please go be miserable. Pay off that sin. Work really hard. Straighten up. Fly right. The purpose of being so graphic with what it feels like to Hosea is to understand not you as much as God. And how in spite of that, in the face of that, He comes for you and toward you. And He's moving toward His people who are even that vile. Who every day say, I'm going out to see my boyfriend. So yeah, there's a rotten marriage, but you've got to take away the redeemed marriage. That's what this is written for. In chapter 3, verse 1, God tells Hosea something apparently he's tried before when he says, go again. Go again. She's done it again. She's betrayed you again. Predictable. Go again. And again. And go again. 
That's the sense of unnatural love. We call it grace. As one friend calls this, Hosea 3 is pure, liquid grace. And here we see this image of Gomer who now has gone from having being an adulteress to actually being trafficked. And probably in chains and probably completely nude before the world to watch. Can you imagine the shame and devastation? And of course, that's what the Scripture is saying. That's what sin looks like. That's where it takes you. You don't see it, but it's going there. And then verse 2. It says something miraculous. So I bought her. I redeemed her. I don't know about you, but I like to kind of imagine the real humans behind passages like this. She's on the stage in chains, and everybody knows what a miserable person she is. And out of the crowd, a voice begins to rise above the others that she recognizes. Where all the others are saying, five lethics of barley, a shekel, any other bidders. Suddenly a voice begins to raise above them, I'll up you 15 shekels, all of the barley I've got. That's the voice of her husband redeeming her. Let's be human for a moment. What do you think she's thinking? Here's a woman who's been a user and she's been used. You know what that does to you? You're very suspicious and cynical. Very hardened against the intentions of others. She would have to have heard, what is he up to? What is his angle? What game is he playing here? I have broken his heart and betrayed him at every step and he's buying me? He's outbidding others for me? How could it be? Pure, liquid grace. Unthinkable in human relationships. But God is upping the ante about Himself. He ain't us. And He has the capacity to come and go again after even these wicked people who repetitively, consistently shun His goodness. No doubt, she's thinking that he's coming for revenge. But what God conveys through Hosea is, I'm coming to rescue you. Not revenge, redemption and reconciliation. That must have been an amazing, moving thing for someone like that. It doesn't take immediately, of course. Verse 3 is kind of this strange language. Hosea says to her, You must dwell as mine for many days, and you shall no longer play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. He's basically saying, Years in the making have you developed these habits of destruction. And for a time, you'll live with me but we won't revisit what you're so familiar with. We will bond in another way. And then those miraculous words, 
I will also be to you. Another translation says, I will indeed be yours. Understand, every word Hosea says is meant to be taken as God speaking to you, His people. And the miracle that you hear His voice above all other bidders for your soul and the suspicion you would have that it can't be that good, He can't be He must be up to something. What's his angle? And you begin to discover no angle. You'll be mine. I'll be yours. That's an important thing to know. Who you are. Identity is a huge topic today. There's a lot of confusion about identity. We can do the same. The place for a believer to understand their identity is not necessarily who you are, but if I can use a preacher trick, whose you are. That outweighs who you think you are. It's whose you are. Imagine having that question with Gomer. Who am I? Am I this adulteress, this betrayer? No, you're mine. I've purchased you. Who are you because of that? This uh, slave-traded, shackled woman filled with shame? No, you're my bride. My beautiful bride. Well, where in our life does God in this passage come into the marketplace of our lives? I hope you follow so far. The image Hosea is presenting is how God relates to His people. Now, if you cannot in any way connect yourself to Gomer, you have nowhere to go with God. That's the gateway. And the glory of God and the majesty of God and the wonder of His gospel will make you yawn rather than sing. And the life you live will be like Gomer. You are consistently trying to just stay married enough that He leaves you alone so you can go do your thing. But if you see Gomer in you, then you will see Hosea in the living God. And in fact, that's where it goes. In, in verse 5, it's kind of veiled language, but it says, after all of this, when all's said and done, I'm going to crush you and send you away into exile. But after the children of Israel will return, and after they've had a good taste of what it looks like to live apart from God, they will return. They will seek me out, and I'll be found. And David, their king, that's a strange thing. David, by this time, has been dead many years. But the Bible is clear about that David would have one upon the throne always. And the interesting thing is, as that points, of course, to the ultimate fulfillment where God, all of those I wills, I will allure her, chapter 2, I will give her. I will remove, I will abolish, I will betroth, I will make you lie down. 
it's paid and answered somewhere down the road. It's the gospel. It is the coming of Jesus Christ to guarantee this. To betroth you to me. What's the engagement ring? The crucifixion. What's the honeymoon? The resurrection. In Matthew 9, it's very strange. The people hearing at the time either would have gasped or not caught what He was saying, but disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus and say, hey, your followers aren't fasting like we are. Aren't they serious about their faith? And Jesus says, why would they mourn when the bridegroom is in their presence? Do you hear that? Jesus owned the image of Hosea. I'm the bridegroom. And I've come for my bride. And she is wayward. And she is a betrayer. And she constantly needs someone to come and redeem her. And I've come to fix it. With lethics of barley, whatever that is. With shekels, hear Paul, because he owns this language too. He says this about the Gospel. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption. That's, a fi- that's an economic term that literally means when you lose a property, you go redeem it. You pay the price to get it back but not with shekels. It says, we've been redeemed through blood. The forgiveness of sins. That's a powerful image. Those of us who find ourselves in shackles on the stage and filled with shame where people are auctioning off our souls. Paul also owns this one. Hey, you've been ransomed. Sin is no longer your master. The false gods are no longer your lord and enslaver. It says, you've been ransomed from those futile ways and not with perishable things like silver and gold or lethics of barley, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. You'll leave this morning and... In a matter of hours, you'll wonder, hey, does God love me? And two, where can I find that? And three, will I ever know security? Because I'm telling you, I feel like every day of my life, it's two steps forward, three steps back with my faith. And I constantly feel like I'm a big, huge letdown. And you know what? It's been so repetitive that I just think I can't do this thing I'm going to give up. I would encourage you to give up. Stop. Because our hope and security, if Hosea is telling the truth, is not in you. It is in Him. And why can we say that we will forever be preserved by the mercy of God? Because He says, it's on me. And when you taste that kind of grace your heart begins to turn away from the enslaving auctioneers. And you begin to discover that my identity, there are many things I could say about me, but here's the one that rules them all. I'm chosen by the Father. I'm redeemed by the Son. 
And I'm set apart by the Holy Spirit. I'm His bride. And when I come down the aisle, it is not my dress that I'm wearing. You've probably been to weddings where you were a little suspicious. But hear this. We would all be suspicious as we marry the Lamb of God. But our bridegroom is the one that purchases the gown and says, wear this in beautiful raiment with all the glory, with all the wonder of my mercy and forgiveness I bestow it upon you. Now come down the aisle. We begin to see that our marriage, which sometimes is marked by, well, bad communication, like a bad marriage, distant. We don't talk that much. You may be like that with God. Or when something bad happens, one spouse typically blames the other. We do that with God. It's a bad marriage. The motive for obedience is what do I get in a marriage? Here, it's not that. It changes. We begin to see that our groom becomes our priority, like our spouse. Of all the relationships in the world, that one matters more. All else is second. You begin to develop an intimacy with God. Married, married people know one another. You can fool the people at work. You can even fool yourself. Your spouse will know. And they're the only ones able to speak into your life, well, affirmations that matter and challenges to change you that actually are helpful. If that's true of the human, what about the divine relationship? Beautiful words. Would you go back this afternoon and read once again, the greatest chapter ever penned in Scripture. Let's pray. Lord, we need You to lead us to Yourself. Father, we know that apart from Your mercy, we would descend into either self-righteousness, which assumes, Lord, You kind of owe us, and we're acceptable to You because of, well, we're not as bad as blank. You've crushed us through Hosea. And all delusions of self-righteousness meet their reality here. We have none. We can offer You nothing. But Lord, You also rescue us from the despair of our sinfulness. Because that's not where You leave us. Lord, help those words go again. Sink into our hearts. And may we own, Lord, the beauty of this marriage You've given. In Christ we pray. Amen. Our closing prayer is, Take my life and let it be. Two verses as we respond this morning. Let's stand as we sing.